Welcome to the Collateral Damage Podcast, another episode, and today I believe we have Andrew McKenna, uh, who is going to be joining us. He is a national speaker, media contributor, author, consultant, and uh, based on what I'm reading here, he did 65 months in federal prison for committing six bank robberies. I know. As somebody who is a personal friend of his, it's really hard for me to reconcile those two people. Right. Well, I mean, first you hear all the good stuff. You're like, wow, this guy's really into it. But why is he into it? You know? Right. And he was. Exactly. uh, And he's just so he's brilliant and and funny and a a really, really, really good friend. Yeah. And um, I can't picture him robbing a bank. (laughs) Well, he's a he was a federal prosecutor. I mean, it's not he's he's not that guy. Like when you look at a group of people, you're like, oh, that's the one. No, he doesn't look like that one. And he doesn't right. Act like if that I one. was standing have... in the bank and he was robbing the bank, I'd look over him going, come on, stop yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> you'd laugh. But right. You'd laugh. I, I Is this a joke? <laughs> I'm but sure at the time. Though, yeah. I mean, he was he was struggling with some uh, some heroin addiction yeah, at the time. So I'm, I'm fairly certain that he did not uh, um, he did not look like a federal prosecutor at the time. I'm sure he was struggling. No. So. And this just goes to speak to to the, the depths of, of, you know, of what people will do. Mm hmm when they are in the middle of this. Well, I mean, I, I think back, um, you know, I was in uh, Middleton during one of my um, m- one of my short stays for substance-related issues. And uh, I remember this this uh, young kid came in. We watched him on the news. We watched him get arrested. We watched the car chase and everything uh, for a bank robbery. And he came in, and he was just this 19-year-old kid, uh, heroin addict, and he was so desperate and so caught up that he just walked in and robbed the bank had never done it before was not a criminal i mean he came in he was so green um you know he was just he didn't belong there but he was there for the crime he committed you know but he just didn't belong there he didn't seem like the kind of person that belonged in jail with us um and you know i I can imagine that andrew probably felt the same uh you know during his 65 months in federal prison that you know although he did these things to get substances this was not who he was right I'm sure most people feel like that, you know, especially at the beginning when you start going into jail in the beginning before mm-hmm. maybe you've been in there three or four times. Can't believe that you're actually where you are. I'm not going to lie. My first time in, I was 19 years old. And I actually at that point, I felt like I belonged there. Uh, I, had, I had more in common with the people there than I did um, I can say you know, that, with yeah. a lot of the folks out on the street. But that was that's my own journey. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hear Andrew's journey because as we talk about you know I love learning from guests and this one seems like it's going to be an interesting interview hearing Andrew talk about his you know his before his after his position now what he does and uh, how he's able to share that message with people you know uh, personally professionally so on and so forth so I'm pretty interested looking forward to it all right well without further ado here is Andrew McKenna So, Andrew, thank you for joining us. Uh, I understand that you have had uh, quite a bit of experiences in your life that led you up to where you are today and uh, have given you some unique perspective, allowing you to interact with the banking industry, with the Bar Association, uh, all of your experience bringing you to where you are today and and giving insight into, um, you know, the impact that substance abuse has on some of these organizations professionally. And I'm curious to hear about your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mike, Maureen, thanks for having me on. Um, the more I think about it is, is I uh, engage different organizations in speaking and education and that sort of thing. Um, the more I find is that people don't grasp or they don't acknowledge 
all the damage that can be done through with addiction. It's not just the individual suffering, uh, which of course is a, a tragic situation, tragic thing, but it's much bigger than that. You know, it's 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 families that are losing homes, losing the, the roof over their head, losing cars, you know, losing all the basic things that we need, um, you know, growing up as children, growing up as young adults, being under the same roof with somebody who's an active, active addiction is, is very difficult. Mm. Uh, and when I speak to lawyers groups, I used to practice law. So I kind of, you know, talk their talk a little bit um, and also medical professions. You know, there's a stigma that is pervasive across the country um, with addiction. And it could be any sort of addiction, substance use disorder. Uh, it could be gambling, you know, the whole gamut. You're, and sometimes uh, they mix together. And they mix together and they overlap. And you think one, the person's getting better in one aspect of their life and some other uh, disorder pops up and it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's a struggle. It's a, the struggle is real. Mm. Um, you know, Andrew, I think that a lot of people don't think about that because we're thinking about kids and talk a lot of talk about, you know, the opioid crisis and for good reason. But we think of people, um, you know, starting to drink or starting to use drugs in, in maybe high school and never having had a career. We don't think about all the people out there that have worked really, really hard to get where they are mm. and then find themselves in the midst of um, of, a, of some sort of addiction and then are not only faced with the stigma of trying to go get help, but faced with also the possibility of losing their careers. That's right. And I'm, I'm a poster child for that. That's exactly yeah. what happened to me. I hurt my back in the Marine Corps. I became addicted to uh, prescription painkillers. My doctor prescribed whatever he wanted. And it, as I'm going through this process, you know, I lost family. I lost uh, jobs. Um, I had to start over. I robbed a bunch of banks. It drove me from being a, a prosecutor to robbing banks. Mm. And, you know, it, and when I say it drove me, the addiction drove me. I'm still responsible for my actions. Right. But as that process is happening, where, how was I thinking about my family at that point? You know, how was I thinking about my friends who were watching me just go down the tubes? And the answer to that is I wasn't. And when I speak to, to high schools and colleges and the younger younger generation, I say, think about your actions, you know, ask for help because addiction is a disease and there's help there. Mm. It's difficult. You got to put in the work, but ask for help. And then just as importantly, picture the look on your mom's face, your dad's face, your, you know, your friends, you know, that know the real, you know, Andrew, you know, know the real Mike. Mm. Um Maureen, I know you're very close with, with addiction and, and what you do. I don't believe that you have addictions issues, thank God. Um, thank God you're still my friend after reading <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but, you know, but in, in, you know, trying to draw that sense of empathy, look what you're doing. You know, you're not showing up. You're showing up high or drunk and you're stealing and all these things. Um the effect when we talk about collateral damage, this is very real. Um, and trying to develop that sense of empathy among listeners that, you know, maybe haven't started their careers yet um, or can't really find their way yet uh, is very important. But I think just as much as that, I think when I listen to you speak, you know, people in uh, in my circle, I, I deal with a lot of parents and they're they can't believe that their child stole grandma's ring that was the most important thing in, in the world to them right. but here we are talking to somebody who spent 
how many years in law school and then building a practice up to you are a federal prosecutor. Is that correct? Yeah, I was or, you know, seven, the, seven years of school and I was a Marine judge advocate general and then right. um, then a federal prosecutor and then in private practice. So this is just for me and to the people that are listening, I think it just drives home the point that you it's not like it's just inflicted on other people. You didn't care about yourself. Mm. I mean, that was you weren't worried about I'm going to lose everything. All you know, once that addiction takes hold, nothing else is on. Everything else is off the table. It's like tunnel vision. And and it's all about it's all about satisfying that that um need that makes no sense to get to get high and um and and i think that people have to realize that because a lot of us never get to the point where our children are doing well enough that we can see them hurting they're hurting themselves and they realize they're they're losing things of their own most of the stuff that's lost is the family relationships the jewelry the money and all that kind of stuff but as it progresses if it, or if it starts later in life People lose all you, you lose all those things. I'm sure you lost everything if yeah. you got to the point where you were robbing banks. I mean, did you have anything left personally to sell or? No, or? and my my mind was so spent at that point. When you talk about the tunnel vision, and of course, and in so many cases, as you guys know, I mean, you have co-occurring mental health issues. I was severely depressed, you know, ang- anxious, anxiety, and of course, that creates this this perceived need but it's really not a need the unhealthy way to handle that is to is to escape and doing that through drugs and then because you're doing drugs now you're still losing everything Mm. which creates more depression more anxiety and i didn't reach out effectively and ask for help and when you talk about tunnel vision maureen i didn't care i didn't have the 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 sensibility i was in the compulsion stage of my addiction where my drive was one thing and one thing only and unfortunately uh, those around me really suffered. And it's tough for families now that, you know, I'm clean from opioids for 13 and a half years. You know, I get the calls all the time, as you do. You, you probably you guys probably get 10 times more calls than I do. And you just hear the suffering in those families and loved ones voices. And all we can do, as you know, is, is just try to guide them through this process. Um, you know, get a great interventionist like Mike, get somebody to come in and explain you know, here's the process. There's a way to navigate what is really a difficult system. Um, right. It can be a difficult system. I mm-hmm. think the industry, the treatment industry is, is sort of policing itself a little bit better now. There's some wonderful programs out there. It's just people would just avail themselves of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that what I, I love the way you talk about your whole the whole progression in your book, because um, I think it's really good for parents to see that it's not. And anybody that loves somebody who's suffering and who's who's gone through this to see that there comes a point where nothing else matters and it's not personal because I see a lot of people taking it personally. You know, right. I can't believe they did that to me. That's, that's it right there. Yeah. 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 And, it, and it makes it really hard to to it makes hard for people to reach out and want to help and, and want to still be part of this person's life. If you think they've, they've done something to you, mm-hmm. but right. in reality, it's so far beyond that, that, that there's not even not thinking about you and doing something to you. They're not even thinking about the, whether they're going to live or die, you know? Right. So right. it's, it's not anything that's, you know, that's that easy to solve that. It's no. if, they, then, if and- they loved you and they cared about you, they wouldn't do that. It doesn't work like that. 
Right. And then trying to get that family member or loved one over that hurdle that you just brought up. That's a huge hurdle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trying to, trying to tell, you know, mom or dad or brother or sister, this, this isn't because they don't like you. This isn't because you have failed somehow. That's right. another big piece of it. Right, you know, and right. Mike, it's an intervention as you probably talk about this. Maureen, I know you talk about this and, you know, not as long as it's just, it's not personal, it's not intentional. And it's not because you've done something wrong. And the question always comes up is, you know, the enabling factor, which is huge. Um, You know, I in my case, I had some people very close to me just put up a wall and and called it tough love. Let me tell you, that didn't do anything for me. Now, they could have set good boundaries, healthy boundaries really to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge advocate for that. And, you know, I always get the question, well, who's buying his cigarettes? Well, I am. Well, who's paying his car? No. Well, I am. Where does he live? In the upstairs bedroom. Does he come home and spend time in your house? Hi. I mean, all these things that, you know, have to be looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's painful. It's painful to try to convince, mm-hmm. you know, mom or dad that this isn't your fault, you know? Well, you know what ends up happening is you were, you were saying before, it's it's like, you know, the family system evolves, they, they adapt, you know, they have this, this situation where they have a loved one who's surviving addiction, you know, they're not, they're not living in it, they're just surviving every day of it, you know, another day of I need what I need, it is what it is, I have to do what I have to do to get it. So they're surviving it. And the family system is trying to find a way to normalize it, because that's what family systems do. They're normalizing this abnormal set of circumstances. So everybody makes adjustments and compromises. Until next thing you know, the family system doesn't even recognize themselves anymore and the things they're doing and the things they're saying. So to your point, it's not about the the hard line of taking everything away. It's more so, you know, creating a healthy system out of an unhealthy system, which, of course, takes change. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. Um, You know, and a lot of times it doesn't necessarily stop the addict or alcoholic from struggling, but it does create a healthier family system that's no longer conducive to addiction. Um, You know, my understanding is that you went... You went all out uh, trying to survive your situation um, and did whatever was necessary. I identify with that. I've got similar stories, not quite yeah. the same as yours. Yours are yours are good, but um, you know the the lengths that you went to survive. Um, you know, and I think that families do the same thing. They go to great lengths to survive these situations, including um, you know rationalizing uh, um, things that are irrational or trying to reason with people who are clearly unreasonable. And it gets exhausting and they get filled with anger. Why isn't this person listening to me? Why aren't they, you know, this is common sense stuff. If I put, you know, the pros and the cons of substance abuse, why aren't you making the, the right choice? And it's like, yeah. you know, the brain changes. It's no longer, it, it just doesn't work the same way anymore. And I'm sure you you remember this. <laughs> and Maureen, oh. I'm sure you've experienced this firsthand. Absolutely. This is, yeah. Absolutely. That's yeah. right. The yeah. Chaos. It's just, it's almost like your brain has been hijacked and, Again, I'm not making excuses for what I did. I'm responsible as the addicted person. I'm responsible for my actions, you know, and um, but that comes with me requesting help. I mean, you know, I nobody wants to be addicted. And when I talk to to judges in particular uh, who have to sentence people to incarceration because of their addictions and um they struggle a lot with this. The legal system struggles a lot. Probation officers struggle a lot. And it's easy for them to become very jaded. They hear some really horrific stories. And um, explaining that, you know, there's alternatives to incarceration. There's, there's treatment programs. And mm-hmm. keep close keep close tabs. But 
I was, it was like my brain was, you know, um, hijacked at that point. Um, and I can yeah. completely see the family system. Right. Were you even thinking about what happens if I get caught? You know, I guess at some points I did, but more or less, no. I mean, at that point, and we're going back, you know, some time now, but it's almost like it was yesterday. Um, yeah. I was just, I was coasting in a river of misery mm. and I was just getting from one step to the next. And it's a funny thing about addiction. You become a, a, a survivalist essentially mm. and, and you know, out of necessity because of the disease. Um, but no, I never really, I never really thought it through. I think the, the, the potential consequences are like an afterthought. You know, at least right. in my memory, it's I did the thing to survive. And then I was like, man, what happens if I get caught? You know, it was like it was an afterthought. Like, I, I knew it could happen. I'm not stupid. Right. But right. at the same time, it was, you know, uh, there's a, a movie I like called The Heat, uh, Heat with uh, Robert De Niro. And, and, and Great uh, the, film, yeah. Yeah, the, one of the quotes is, you know, is, is, the juice, is the juice worth the squeeze? Basically, is, yeah. the, is the crime worth the time? And, you know, I would always measure it that way. Is like, you know, I, I need this bad enough. This is worth the potential consequences. Right. And, uh, and you, you know, think about the consequences, but you know tomorrow you're going to start all over again, right. you know, and, and do the same thing. Even though you've considered the consequences, you know, you, you intellectualize mm -hmm. the consequences, um, but they just don't seem real. Right. Well, like if I mean, even just in human nature, like forget about substance abuse, like, you know, Andrew, I was telling you about that speeding ticket I got recently, uh, you know, and I mean, I got that speeding ticket. Does that mean that I'm never going to speed again? Probably, probably not, you know, and, and, and I mean, I, I'm going to try to stay within the limits, but, you know, the, the, the potential consequences are, are sometimes not enough to get us to change all our behavior, you know, just just being a human being. Uh, so let alone being a survivalist, uh, you know, somebody struggling with a substance use disorder who is desperate to find relief. Uh, at every corner, consequences don't necessarily play into the decision-making process, at least yeah. from my understanding, from my perspective. I, I like the way you said that too, Mike, because it really is about relief. And I don't mm. think that, I think that that's another misconception as people think that the party never ends. Right. You know, I mean, we all know that that's true, but, and I don't know if I totally knew that was true in the very beginning, but everybody, I think a lot of people think, well, they're just having too much fun to stop. And that's not what it is mm. to be this desperate to steal grandma's ring or to rob a bank or to do anything in between. You're absolutely desperate to survive and to get relief from pain. And I see that I see this all the time now. And um, I think in the when my when I first experienced this with my daughter, I thought to myself, I can't believe that she did this. I can't mm. believe she did this. And then as time went on, I realized that, you know, why she did it. And, and then there was people say, we have you forgiven her. And it was now I, I really can honestly say there was nothing to forgive mm. because she was trying to, she was trying to survive and she was trying to get out of pain. And that then when you start really understanding this, I think that it, it, it becomes really helpful in, in, bringing your family back together and, 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 you know, reconnecting those relationships yeah. Yeah. because right. you certainly wouldn't have worked that hard and that long and to, to, you know, throw it all away if you just for a good time. Yeah, no, that's if, you're not, true. if you're not getting yeah, something true. out of it, why would you do all that? Right. Right. Andrew, I have a question for you. So, you know, I've, I had, um, 
you know, with with my experience uh, struggling with substance use, I had a lot of um, uh, arrests, uh, a lot of time on probation. Um, I spent some time in jail, spent some time in prison early on as a, a late teen or teenager. And, you know, I know that the, you know, we, we're talking now as people who understand it, people who know it. A lot of our listeners are people who are parents or family members of, and they understand it uh, to a certain extent. But within... Um, you know, within the, the legal industry, you know, I guess everything from the from the, the court system right into the prison system, there's definitely a, a perspective that's much different than ours, a, a stigma almost to, to how they see us. Right. As uh, not not necessarily well, maybe up until just recently, but that they didn't see us as sick and suffering. They saw us as just criminals, you know, right. and, and I know that that's shifted a little bit uh, over the past few years. But w- what's your. Uh, what's your insight into that? I mean, have you you're speaking with these people? Are you having any luck changing their opinion? <laughs> there's some there's some real hardliners um, that aren't they they aren't buying it, right? You know, in, the, in their minds, they're so stuck in their ways of thinking, and that's just difficult to penetrate. And you know, if you're a judge, you're really holding all, a lot of cards, right? Um, certainly, violent crimes. You know, when we're talking about especially elected judges versus appointed judges, you know, if that person's not punished the way society thinks they should be punished, then that judge might not get reelected. Liability. Liability, too. Yeah. And and liability. Right. And they don't want to be in the paper that, well, they let this guy go and he Mm -hmm. beat up somebody and took their money. Well, why? Why isn't he in jail? You know, right. Um, But there's alternatives to that. I mean, there's. If the person needs treatment, the thing that, bought, that troubles me in the federal system, they have um, it's called RDAP, it's a res- Residential Drug uh, Addiction Program, and it's 18 months. It's very intensive, um, and they do a lot of good things. I've talked to federal probation officers and judges who've told me people who come out of RDAP typically get through their period of probation. It's actually supervised release in the federal system, mm-hmm. typically three to five years, depending on the crime, but. So there's some people that are very hardline that just won't bend, mm-hmm. you know, lock them up, throw away the key. Right. But I think the younger judges, you know, well, I say younger judges, I'm talking 45 to, to 70, right? Mm-hmm. That's young. I mean, they're <laughs> for a judge. Yeah. They're, um, I see a sea change. I really do. Mm. But it, it's going to take somebody like you, Maureen, myself, somebody in the field who understands it, to to be available for to a phone call for the judge. I appear in court and, and give my opinion um, to coordinate with probation officers and, you know, uh, defense attorneys, mm-hmm. uh, district attorneys and say, look, there's an alternative for this guy. It's time consuming. You know, people have been burned, who've given people second chances, but we have to do something. You know, and and people need to be punished for crimes. We know that. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, um, the, the alternative of drug courts. So you know, the and, and my understanding is actually they're changing the name of that uh, to recovery courts now. Uh, they're trying to uh, change the way that we talk about this, and and you know, from it being like a drug problem, and that's why you have to go to court, to being like you have an illness. This is a recovery issue. That's why you're going to court, which I actually like. I like that idea. Um, you know, but a lot of those judges have, you know, they've pioneered those programs and they have pushed them. And a lot of people have done well with that level of accountability, but mixed with the understanding that they have an illness. 
You know, not just right. the automatic assumption that because you have committed a nonviolent crime or a drug related crime, that the punishment of going to jail is going to change your mind. Like we were talking about earlier, it's right. not a reasonable mind. <laughs> it's right. not a rational mind. Like you don't go into jail and deal with the punishment and get six months and come out and be like, you know what? I've learned my lesson. I'm no longer an addict or an alcoholic. This was great. Thanks, guys. Yeah. You know, and that's just, and I've done that because I know I did the six months and came out. I was like, I don't feel any different. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm just six months older. I remember withdrawing on the floor of a, a jail cell mm -hmm. with no comfort meds, as we call them now, right? Yeah, you get an extra um, blanket, extra roll of toilet paper, maybe. Right. <laughs> Lucky to even get a blanket. Yeah. Um, a lot of that's changed. Uh, we have a sheriff up here in Albany County named um, Craig Apple, uh, just an amazing guy set up a unit in the jail just for people in recovery, wow. um, set up a Suboxone program because mm. a lot of people were coming off the street with prescriptions for Suboxone. Mm. And once they got to jail, they wouldn't fill their prescription. Now, Suboxone withdrawals are nearly as painful as heroin withdrawals. I'd say yeah. they're longer. I, when I did it, it took me over two weeks to get through the withdrawals of Suboxone. Wasn't yeah. as wasn't as intense and powerful, but it was a little bit more longer and drawn out. And you know, if you're going through that in a cell, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So, you know, this this sheriff Sheriff Apple, he's taken it upon himself to to set up these different areas within the jail system mm. where people who want recovery, so they don't come out after six months and say, "Okay, I'm I'm cured." Well, no, that's not the way it works. You know, mm. um, now if you've gotten treatment while you're in jail then you're coming out with a much better chance of success, you know, and, and we're seeing more and more of that, but still it's a fight, you know, mm -hmm. and that's why we see these rallies and we see these, you know, coalitions coming together and doing public things, you know, having, um, you know, idea exchanges and, you know, being very vocal with politicians and, and, um, other folks saying, well, look, we've got to do something differently because right now recidivism rate in the federal system is probably around 60% within three years. Somebody will be, you know, and the, the statistic of people with substance use disorders in the prison and the jails is through the roof. Mm -hmm. um, something has to change. I mean, I'll be honest. I remember uh, I was getting, I think I was going to court uh, from Middleton County Jail and uh, one of the gentlemen that I was in there with um, got discharged that morning. And uh, I left for court when he was getting discharged. And when I came back from court, he was being booked again. Oh, Lord. You know, yeah. and, and I mean, what you're talking about, you're talking about people who are getting locked up and going through and the, their entire experience not getting. And I'm not saying that if he got treatment, he wouldn't have come back. I mean, I don't know the person well enough, but just that the, the idea of corrections, you know, there needs to be maybe an added element to that yeah. of understanding why people are committing the crimes. And while you have them not just babysitting them, but maybe a good portion of them could use some treatment um, to lower the, the, the recidivism rate, you know, to, to keep them from coming back. But my, my understanding is there's currently a, a, I hate to call it a battle, but I guess it is. There's currently a battle or a discussion or a debate or some action being taken where there was a um, one inmate that uh, started a, a legal battle to get methadone while he was in a Massachusetts uh, state jail, I believe, or county jail, uh, and that kind of started a, a wave of other people like, well, why aren't we allowing people to taper down when they come in, or why are we, you know, eliminating their medication when they come through? And I mean, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of some of these medications long term, but I can understand the short term coming in. Why, why would 
why would we make it harder for them to come down and actually taper off it just seems like archaic right. unnecessary punishment <laughs> yeah. and a lot of people think that well you know why should they get why should we have to spend taxpayer dollars to do this and you know i was i argued some point on some show and it had to do with the training programs in, in the federal system mm. there were none Right. They, you know, they had a couple like a welding program. I think they took 12 people every six months on a compound of, of 2,200 people, mm-hmm. you know. And so the issue was, well, we don't want to. Why would we train them? Why would we spend the money? You either spend it on the front end, you know, from a fiscal standpoint, right. spend it on the front end and get them treatment, teach them a trade, which was really my point mm-hmm. at, in that discussion. Or you, you spend it a couple of years later, you know, housing them for 40000 a year, which I think is really low. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, if you want to argue the super fiscal conservatives and say, spend it now or spend it later, mm-hmm. um, you want them going, inmates going re- released back to their communities, gainful employment, pay taxes, be good role models, stay clean. It, it's doable, mm-hmm. but we have to put the money in the right spots. You know, I, this is, I, I don't understand this. This is like the same thing for addiction and and um, and, uh, you know, the prison system is we're not putting any time or money into helping people while we have them there, where right. th- there's a good possibility that many of them may come out and be able to turn their life around. But when you're um, when you come out of, out of prison or out of jail and I taught in the jail, so I got to see how many people were um were involved with drugs and mm. that's the reason that they they the big part of the reason why they wound up where they were but if somebody has the is leaving and has nowhere to go and and no hope of uh getting a job really honestly come on i mean just from a reasonable person's uh viewpoint what's the point of putting all this work into it because it's hard so what's the Absolutely. point of doing any of this? And that's where you get your person that's you're getting, you know, on the way out They're They're leaving and then getting booked on the same day. That's what right. were they supposed to do? They don't it's a matter of despair. <laughs> it's really despair. Right. You know, fortunately, I had a law degree when I got out. So I was OK. Right. But I had friends, um, you know, in prison that readily would admit that they're going to go back and sell crack. But or, that's all they have. That's all they know. I mean, they don't know anything else. And they're going back to typically an impoverished community with um, which, you know, creates a whole different set of challenges. Right. You know, right. and yeah, I don't I I just wish they would do more and to see them continue to cut programs as opposed to boost the programs. And mm-hmm. President Obama, I think, did a, a interesting thing, a smart thing. He reinstated Pell Grants yep. for people who were incarcerated. Um, give them a chance. Come out with an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. Some of the smartest, um, nicest, most charismatic people I've ever met were behind bars. And they wanted the opportunity to improve. It's just there right. wasn't any money for the programs. So, right. oh. Well, well there's, there's money. It's just not being put into programs. No, yeah, you're I mean, right. You look at the budgets. Yeah, it exists. It exists. I mean, I, I can say the last time that I got out, when I got out of jail, it was... You know, it was 2007 and uh, I got out and I, I will tell you, I, I stepped out of the court and I felt like a caged animal that had just been let out of the zoo. Yeah, I, I didn't know how to interact with people like I just didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Like the skill set that I had 
was a very special skill set, like Liam Neeson says. I don't have a lot of money, but I have a very special set of skills. You know, I could do a thing. And the thing that I could do was that I could hustle, I could sell drugs, I could commit crimes, I could steal things. And, you know, the simple fact that I got released from jail means I wasn't that good at it. But, uh, you know, I could do those things. And those were the skills that I brought to the table when I was released. And when I was in, I didn't develop any new ones. You know, no. I wasn't interacting with, um, you know, the people who were correcting me um, at the Department of Corrections. I wasn't interacting with any social workers or therapists or clinicians or caseworkers on a daily basis that were there to adjust or correct my behavior or add skill sets to what, I, you know, I was going to leave, right, as an adult back into the community to become a taxpayer, to become a burden on the local police department, to become another potential statistic, but while I was in jail, nothing was being done to prevent that from happening. That's right. And that, that's what we're talking about here is that, you know, there's there's plenty to be said about it. Um, yeah. I can't imagine what's going to be done about it, but there's plenty to be said about it. I'm glad that you're here helping us say these things. Uh, maybe well, one you, of our listeners is the powerful person that needs to hear this to do something, right? Absolutely. When you talk about the skill set, I just want to say one thing. So I had the skill set because I had the, the education under my belt. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry about that, guys. Um, but I came out so edgy, so defensive. Mm-hmm. I walked funny, my wife told me. She goes, you look like you're, you're about to get in a fight. And why are you staring at people like they're staring? Yeah. You know, and, you know, I, I grew up, you know, not in a dangerous area, not where I always had to be on guard or something mm-hmm. like that. But you know what that environment's like. You know, and you, you come out. I mean, she used to, my wife used to laugh at me and said, just calm down. I'm like, no, I'm calm. But I wasn't, you know, no, so, no. no, it was it was just it's it's almost like the strange paranoia. Um, and you don't even realize, I think, that you, it's being becoming institutionalized, really. Mm-hmm. And, so if, you, uh, if you if you could do one thing, Andrew, what would it be to change this? What would be the first step in in changing this? It would it would be expanding two things. One, treatment programs um, and having people who are in the industry and are in the business of, of helping and getting helping people get help to, to navigate those systems for people. Because it really is when you're in yeah. it, it, you know, and number two would be what we're talking about. Training programs, mm. you know, right. you know, right. be, you know, anything. So you come out and you have a marketable skill. Um and then even for people that aren't heading to incarceration, um, and we, you and I have talked about this, we you know, opening up opportunities for people to get into treatment. Mm. You know, I keep, I hate to use the word industry because it seems so cold and, and corporate, but it is. It and is. you have really good programs out there that are there to help people. And you have also have other programs that are there to make money and really don't care about treatment. I think that's the thing. I was talking yeah. to a friend of mine last night and he said, that's what you should be doing is going after these big treatment companies that are making millions of dollars. And, you know, um, yeah. you know, I don't know how popular that is or what, what change it would make, you know, but, uh, well, I guess that's so. So, what we keep talking about, and I, I guess it happens at every, it happens every podcast we have, is you know we're talking about the collateral damage. We're talking about all these pieces, right? And you know we hear about uh, the sides of substance use disorder that, that nobody really talks about, or we hear about the impact it has on our computer, uh, communities. More importantly, uh, we have great guests like yourself who come on and we talk about great ideas, right? And at the end of this podcast, we're not going to fix that thing. I'd love to. 
That'd be cool. <laughs> if at the right. end of one of these podcasts, somebody be calls in. I mean, like I, we did the thing we just talked um, about. <laughs> I think podcasts like this, you know, collateral damage is an eye opener for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Oh, for yeah. sure. I mean, you guys are doing great, great stuff with the podcast and um, raising awareness. I mean, look what happened in Florida, for right. instance, you know, with patient brokering. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's changing the whole structure. Got of everything very, de- down there. very tough on people, you know, putting people away for decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah. Well, and they should be, you know, they should be. If they're harming, if they're doing harm, mm-hmm. then there should be consequences. And, um, but people like you guys, you know, helping people get into quality programs, mm-hmm. helping families understand. Um, and then and for the person who's suffering, you know, look at what your actions are doing to others. I think creating that sense of empathy, uh, Mike and Maureen, is going to be critical. Um, and because there's people that aren't so far along down the road mm-hmm. uh, who might who might listen to that. There's no well, doubt about so, that. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank it's been you. A great pleasure. You guys are awesome. Well, hopefully, we'll Thanks have so you on much. again soon. Thanks. All right. That was a great interview, wasn't it? That was a great interview. Yeah, I mean, I I felt bad that we had to shut it down. Uh, I know. You know. I wish we had more time, and I'd love to have Andrew back on so that we can continue the conversation. Because I think, Absolutely. you know, what, what we discussed was we discussed all the different things that could be done, all the things that need to be done. You know, adding to our, um, you know, our prison system to the Department of Corrections. I mean, we're spending all of this money. We're spending all of this money and all this time and effort, and we have these people um, who. You know, they're going to come out. They're going to come back into society. They're going right. to either be taxpayers. They're going to be living in our communities. And why wouldn't they get new skills during this time that they're in jail? Why wouldn't there be some correction or some uh, additional services added to their to their sentence to make them uh, um, uh, to give them more skills or to make them? Uh, uh, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, you can't be against this. It no. doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's It's insane. And I guess that's the thing is like, so are we trying to? Uh, just punish everybody or are we actually trying to help them right i mean that goes i I mean even hopefully parents when they when their kids were younger you had to have rules and there had to be repercussions for breaking the rules Mm -hmm. but we didn't want our children to feel worse about themselves after they got the repercussions we wanted them to be smarter and understand why they shouldn't do that again and be better people after that, right? That was the whole goal. So then you go in in, and why wouldn't that be the goal of the prison system Mm. for people to come out better people, better equipped and healthier than they went in. And instead that's the exact opposite of what happens. And they can't get a job because now they have a record. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree with you. I mean, if people, as a parent, right. So like when I would punish my children, um, uh, I didn't just punish them and hope they learned a lesson. You know, the idea is to punish them and then use that opportunity to improve on them, you know, to to give them some tool or skill to help them understand a, why they were punished. Did they learn a lesson? What are they going to do differently? You know, you take advantage of that opportunity and I'm not saying we treat them like children, uh, but why not take advantage of this time and tax money that we're spending no, it's actually... just the whole concept of punishment. I right. mean, punishment, not punishment for punishment's sakes, mm-hmm. sake, but no matter whether it's, uh, you know, who it is, it's right. it's with the goal of, of of better understanding of why we can't do this in the future and becoming a better person after it's after the punishment part is over with. Of course. Yeah. 
it, it, it's it doesn't make any sense on this end you know what i mean obviously i'm not in control of the budget and i don't you know i at the end of this we're not going to change privatized prison industry uh that's, right. a, that's a monster in this country but mm-hmm. you know i mean uh, the, the conversation that we had with andrew and the reason it was so hard to stop that conversation is because we could talk all day long about all the things that are broken and you know my hopes are that our listeners uh, uh they they hear it they want to do something about it um, you know, or that we're starting a conversation or maybe I'm just getting informed. I'm, I'm feeling great talking to people and learning about what other people are trying to do out there. And, and maybe just hearing that I'm not the only one, that, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one thinking about this stuff and wondering why it's not working, right. uh, which is also nice. Right. So, uh, you know, he was, uh, he brought up quite a few good points. I mean, about, Talking with, uh, you know, banks uh, and helping them figure out uh, their weaknesses, you know, taking somebody right. who, you know, used to rob banks and then now <laughs> being in a position to, um, to to help them find their weaknesses. I know he's also speaking at the Bar Association in Utah. And that's something I've never thought about is how many people work so hard on their careers and get to a point like he was. He was a federal prosecutor and um, get taken down by addiction. And right. now we're in the danger of losing the careers that they worked so hard for. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I've met quite a few people, you know, uh, lawyers, practicing physicians, pilots, you know, people with, with careers where, you know, if, if substance abuse isn't addressed, that it's going to take them down. Um, you know, and I mean, being able to speak to those people and, and maybe talk to them about how it's okay to talk about this. It's okay to discuss this openly and address it. It's okay to come out and say, you know, I have this issue as long as you take care of it, that it doesn't have to be a career ender. Yeah, you know? well, it was it was just a great conversation. I know that he speaks all over the place. That's one of the things he does. He's on Fox five all the time as well. Right. Um, but and we're going to have some information on the website. And yeah, here. I'll put his yeah. uh, his email address, I believe, is okay, how he likes right. to be contacted. Get in so. touch with him if they're looking for a speaker, because he's an awesome speaker. Mm-hmm. He knows his stuff, too. I have worked with him before. He's the kind of guy that, you know, for me, he he always calls back. He works really hard on helping people because he understands what it's like. Absolutely. No, it'll be uh, yeah. I... no, good. No, I was just going to say, I also saw an article by Sam Quinones who wrote oh, yeah. Dreamland. Yep. That's out. And um, it's about a doctor that lost his medical license. Really? Because of addiction. Yeah. It looks really very interesting. Be- because, the, because the doctor was struggling with substance use? Yes. Wow. And okay. I, I know Sam has his own website and he's on Facebook and um, uh, it looks like it look, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it looks like a very interesting article. I also posted it on Magnolia New Beginnings. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, I know, I, I've seen a couple articles recently. Um, one in particular that got my eye today uh, or yesterday, actually, was that um, this the first major drug distribution company. Former executives criminally charged in the opioid crisis. Now, I know we just recently had uh, Dominic Esposito on, and we were talking right. about, um, you know, the Sackler family, and you know, trying to uh, trying to bring charges and everything, and trying to you know make noise and, and raise awareness. And it was really interesting to see this. And I, I mean, I don't know where it's going to go, uh, but it looks like um, they arrested Lawrence Dowd um, along with another gentleman from that same company. Um, who are possibly facing life in prison, uh, which would be, you know, the, I guess they'd be setting a precedent. This would be one of the first experiences where, you know, these drug companies, and this is, uh, what is the name of this company here? Rochester Drug 
cooperative um, for basically drug trafficking, um, you know, because of the amount of pills that they were (laughs) pumping out there. Right. Uh, which I know was kind of the, the the topic there with Dreamland was you know how many pills were being pumped into this tiny little town, right. uh, and how another, could they possibly justify it? <laughs> another another great uh, book on that is Dope Sick um, by Beth Macy. Yep. <clears throat> and I think we know this, but we haven't done anything about it, which is why it keeps going. Well, it's, and it, you can't sue these people enough, these no. companies enough. It's just not possible to sue them to, into stopping. You have to criminally prosecute people that knowingly do this, just like any other drug trafficker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the money doesn't mean anything to them. Right. I mean, it would mean it would mean the world to, you know, the the, the field of addiction and recovery for that money to go to the right place. But for the people that are doing it, it's not punishment. You know, losing that tiny little bit of money um, doesn't do anything. But if the execs are facing life in prison. Um, you know, if the people who are actually making the decisions, the board, the people who are, are profiting off of this uh, uh, drug trafficking and stuff like that, if they're if they're prosecuted. But like we said in our, our interview with Dominic, you know, if, we're, if we can influence the next generation of people that think they're going to get away with this and stop it from happening. Yeah, yeah, we can't do anything about what's already happened. there's no money in the world that can fix the damage and lives lost. But we can make sure that the next board sits down and says, hey, guys. I don't think we can do this. (laughs) You know, the next CEO is like, listen, guys, I know you want to make a bunch of money, but we need to do it right because I'm not going to prison for life like that other guy did. Right. Exactly. That's what I think that's what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that might that may be the thing that, you know, changes people's minds about whether you want to do this or not. I support it. (laughs) I support it. Go get them. (laughs) Yeah. So that'll be interesting to watch how that plays out. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, so you know, I know Andrew uh, mentioned that he's got quite a few speaking engagements coming up, and I know that between um, you know him speaking to the uh, the bar association, uh, and he, I believe he said he had something coming up in North Carolina. Uh, there's plenty of opportunities to uh, to hear him, uh, and I'm I'd love to, I think I'd like to have him back on again. Uh, maybe oh, I'd love maybe to have at him a future date. Again, yeah, unfortunate. I'm his friend. I get to talk to him all the time. <laughs> Well, so I'm just going to get these little bursts, and so are our listeners. But, uh, you know, they can also um, – he's been on um, quite a few shows that they can follow up, and, and they can they can watch some of his previous interviews. Um, you know, he's definitely discussed a lot of good topics, policy, a lot of the changes that are happening in this industry. And so it's always good to get other people's perspective. Yes, absolutely. All right, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Collateral Damage. Uh, as always, if you'd like to find out uh, find out all the different ways that you can listen to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to, to, to listen and subscribe, and we encourage you to choose the one that's most appropriate for you. And as always, I would encourage our listeners to get informed. Stay connected. Thank you for joining us.